0: Welcome to this week's edition of Good Books Radio. Audiobooks.com is the cheap underwriter for Good Books Radio, which is produced by UTRGB Media Services for Rio Grande Valley Public Radio. And now here's your host, David Inojosa.
1: Welcome to another edition of Good Books Radio. This is your host, David Hinojosa, and my guest today is Dr. Karthik Hosanagar. He is the John C. Howard Professor of Technology and Digital Business and a professor of marketing at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. He is also the co founder of four different ventures and was recognized in 2011 by Poets and Quants as one of the best 40B school profs under the age of 40. His writing has appeared in Wired, Forbes, and Harvard Business Review. And his past consulting and executive education clients include Google, American Express, Citigroup, and SunTrust Bank. He earned his PhD in management science and information systems from Carnegie Mellon University. And he is here to talk to us about his new book, A Human's Guide to Machine Intelligence, How Algorithms Are Shaping Our Lives and How We Can Stay in Control. Dr. Karthik Hosanagar, welcome to the program. David, thanks for having me. Uh, first and foremost, congratulations on your new book. I, I truly found your book eye-opening, and uh, it has furthered my interest in uh, algorithms and, and uh, artificial intelligence, I had no idea all of the uh about all the implications that came with uh with uh you know something that is ruling uh our our social and entertainment uh and you know and our shopping behaviors now uh due to the fact that it, algorithms are affecting the way we date the way we uh, become social with one another do we spend or interact more because of algorithms?
0: Well, you know, the algorithms are clearly creating a lot of value. They are helping us us make better decisions, you know, on search engines. You know, instead of searching through thousands of websites that may contain information of interest, they're allowing us to focus on the few that might matter, you know, on uh, websites like Amazon or, or Netflix, again, recommendations, help us find the more relevant options. On Amazon, over a third of our choices are driven by algorithmic recommendations. On Netflix, over 80% of the choices we uh, make or 80% of our viewing activity is driven by algorithmic recommendations. And they're influencing, you know, in dating, again, uh, helping... Uh, people who might not otherwise connect, algorithms say, hey, you're compatible, you should meet. Um, And so algorithms are creating a lot of value. Sometimes it does go wrong. Uh, Does it help new people connect? To some extent it does when you look at things like uh, dating apps and uh, uh, perhaps even Facebook and LinkedIn. But in other instances, uh, they might actually be uh, making our consumption more narrow. Uh, For example, you know, if we keep consuming more and more of of what we like through personalization algorithms, then is our news consumption too narrow? So there are those concerns as well. Some of it depends on the design of the algorithm and the setting in which you're uh, looking at its impact.
1: Right. Now, if a lot of our decisions are being generated by algorithms. How truly in control are we?
0: Well... Uh, I'm going to say that we don't really have the level of controls, especially when it comes to online decisions, as most of us think we do. I just mentioned that Amazon, a third of our choices are driven by algorithmic recommendations. On Netflix, 80% of the viewing activities through algorithmic recommendations. On YouTube, seventy percent of the time we spend on YouTube is driven by uh, recommendations by algorithms uh-huh. on dating uh, apps like Tinder. Almost all of the matches are because of algorithmic recommendations. There are studies that show they can even influence decisions such as you know whether we decide to vote or not. There was a study uh, conducted by researchers in Facebook where they tweaked the newsfeed algorithms of users to see how that might change their Decisions. In particular, they had some users' uh, news feed modified so they got more hard news, meaning more stories like the war in Iraq as opposed to uh, funny cat videos. And they looked at how uh, how many of these people clicked the I voted button on Facebook, which was uh, allowed or, or, or shown around the time of the elections. And what they found is that the self-reported voter turnout for the group that saw more hard news went up uh, from 64 percent to 67 percent and three percentage points might not sound like much but you know we know many elections including the 26 election 2016 elections were influenced by numbers that are much smaller so clearly these systems do have a very significant impact on our choice and they drive a lot of our decisions online and. You know, even a Google search out of millions of pages uh, that uh, could be shown and maybe even several hundred that are relevant, most of us see just the top two or three. And so, again, it's an algorithm that's uh, influencing
1: what we see, what we buy, what we do. Right. Now, you you also um, mention that algorithms are not only just coded by someone, but there's new algorithms that learn from our own behaviors. I mean, I, I, right now I can recall the example of how the Google project of the self-driving car, the, the algorithm within that, uh, viewed how humans interacted. And uh, could, could you tell us a little bit more about the, the difference between uh, the algorithms Yeah, so
0: if you wanted to use an algorithm to make decisions and have it make decisions as well as human beings, the question is how do we create that kind of intelligence or specifically that kind of artificial intelligence or AI? Now, one approach to doing that is you interview lots of experts and you identify the rules they use to make decisions Mm -hmm. and you code those rules. And that's how we used to code algorithms in the past. Uh, Essentially, if I wanted to drive a car then what I would do is I'll ask you, David, to tell me what are the rules you use to drive cars. And we could spend hours where you list these rules like, you know, if the car in front of you breaks and and it's close enough that you will break yourself uh, and you uh, switch lanes when this happens, when you see a stop sign, you stop and so on. And so you'll give me a bunch of these rules. And I can code all of these rules. And it turns out you can build reasonable software with that, reasonably good. But it was bound to fail at some point, and it's not going to really be as good as a human because what's going to happen is eventually you'll encounter a situation that is not covered by a rule, and it fails. And same thing with trying to diagnose a disease. You can interview doctors, and you can identify all the rules, and you can build a reasonable system, but it's not going to be as good as the doctor. Mm -hmm. So where we've gone now, more recently, is that we've said, look, if it's so hard to find all the rules for decision-making, let's actually switch and use data and have the machines learn on their own from the data. Mm -hmm. This is the area of what's known as machine learning, which is the most important subfield of AI. Mm -hmm. And the idea here is if you've got lots of data, the machines can learn the patterns in there on their own. So if you want to make a machine drive a car, then you video... Uh, or you videotape or record uh, tens of thousands of people driving their cars over many days. Mm -hmm. And with this data on, you know, all these people driving cars over hundreds of thousands of miles, the machine learning algorithm can look at that and learn the patterns. When should I brake? When should I turn left? When should I switch lanes? And so on. And it learns how to drive on its own by looking at the data. Similarly, if you have data on hundreds of thousands of patients who walked into hospital systems and you know what were the symptoms they had and what was the final diagnosis by the doctor, then these machine learning algorithms, again, can look at the patterns and learn how to diagnose diseases. So that's the direction in which uh, we've been going over the last few years. So increasingly, it's not a programmer feeding in rules that the system follows, but mostly it is and patterns that the system learns on
1: its own by looking at large amounts of data right and and there's you also mentioned on uh, negative implications of that. Uh, could you tell us a little bit how uh, algorithms sometimes have gone rogue and they've uh, picked up on negative uh, situations uh, and uh, h- that are potentially harmful for for consumers yeah,
0: there have been many recent instances where algorithms have done unusual things that we couldn't have predicted in advance. In 2016, ProPublica, which is a nonprofit site, they did an analysis of algorithms used in courtrooms in the U.S., and they found that these algorithms had a race bias. Mm -hmm. Specifically, these algorithms were tasked with predicting risk scores for defendants, like the risk that they would re-offend. And what happened was that these algorithms were twice as likely to falsely predict future criminality in black defendants than white defendants. There was also there were also news stories late last year about resume screening algorithms that have a gender bias, so they were more likely to reject women job applications uh, applicants uh, when the qualifications were similar. Uh, We know about Facebook's uh, newsfeed algorithm, its failure in 2016 to detect fake news stories, and that resulted in a lot of fake news stories circulating. And just recently, there was the crash of the Ethiopian airline, and it uh, seems from early investigations that the problem was with the autopilot system, Mm -hmm. and that's again an algorithm that failed and caused the plane to crash. So there's many examples of these kinds of crashes. If you look at, for example, the resume screening algorithm, uh, it having a gender bias, it comes down to the data from which it learns. Because when we are trying to train it to select which job applicants to invite for an interview, what you do is you give it data on hundreds of thousands of job applicants in the past, which ones got invited for an interview, which ones got the job which ones got promoted at the job. And it's trying to mimic that. But if there's a gender bias in the organization and women were not getting jobs and women were not getting promoted, then the algorithm picks up that bias. And so some of these rogue behaviors of algorithms are
1: coming uh,
0: often from the data.
1: I see. Now, um, you also mentioned uh, about a bill of rights of sort, those outlined by the US uh, government. Could you tell us a little bit more about this? Because I mean, since algorithms are everywhere now, you know, the uh, there's a set of principles that the United States government came came with. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about this?
0: Yeah, I think the point is that algorithms are everywhere. They're making so many decisions for us and about us, and uh, we need to take this a little more seriously and figure out how do we provide consumers with some protection. And that's what led me to come up with the Bill of Rights, which was some basic protection that consumers can and should expect from the algorithms that are making decisions for us. So one of the pillars of the Bill of Rights that I proposed was this idea, or is this idea of transparency. So that is transparency with regard to both the data and the algorithm's logic. And the transparency for users can be at a very high level. It can be just simple information on what kinds of data were used to make a decision, even just informing the user that an algorithm made the decision and then what data it used and what were the key variables uh, that the algorithm uh, used. So, for example, if you apply for a job, uh, just being informed that an algorithm decided to reject your job application and being informed that the data used were not only what you provided in your job application, but also, let's say, your social media posts. That would be useful to know. And what were the key variables used? So just, again, being informed, uh, you know, with some simple explanations on uh, the most important variables uh, to drive uh, job selection or for credit approval, what those were. So that's transparency. Mm -hmm. Another pillar I've mentioned is control, which is the idea that users should have a little bit more control on how algorithms make decisions for them or about them, mm-hmm. and so we don't want to completely eliminate the human in the loop, but we also want to figure out how do we use the human productively in the in this uh, in the way algorithms work, and sometimes that might be simple. So, for example, uh, in 2016. Facebook's newsfeed algorithm had no feature that allowed people to report fake news or false news. Mm -hmm. And there were people who were observing fake news in their newsfeed, but they didn't know what to do about it because they couldn't alert the algorithm. Today, Facebook has a feature wherein with just two clicks, you can alert Facebook's algorithm and let them know you think a certain post is offensive or it's it's fake news and so on. Mm -hmm. And that, again, is this idea of involving the human in the loop. Uh, let's not completely eliminate the human uh, and and make them passive. Let them be active users of the technology, uh, and that's important to keep the user engaged, but also helps provide checks and balances. And also with regard to transparency, the other aspect of transparency is also you know this idea that companies should audit their algorithms. I think their algorithms are moving to become more and more black box in nature. Mm-hmm. Some of the modern machine learning algorithms are highly opaque, and even the engineers cannot fully explain why these algorithms make the decisions they make. Mm-hmm. You know, What is the precise reason why this job application was rejected? It's hard to say with modern algorithms, like neural nets, which are modeled on the human brain. Um, and so what is important is that before you deploy algorithms, especially in settings where they make socially consequential decisions, let's have an audit process in place so that companies audit the algorithms and then release them for uh, public consumption.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, in order for humans to be more involved in this, how much training should we look into? I mean, I mean because you, we should have a, a, a broad, at least a broad understanding of how these work and how they influence us. What do you recommend for people to uh, understand more about algorithms or what should they study or know about them?
0: So I think there's uh, there's three pieces here in terms of how humans can play more of a role here. Uh, I think the first is is knowledge. I think it's about learning and, and becoming more active users of uh, these technologies and not passive users who use them without understanding what's uh, beneath the surface. And that is one problem that I wanted to address. And in fact, my book, uh, A Human's Guide to Machine Intelligence, tries to fill that gap. It tries to explain. How do these algorithms work? At least the high-level details that a user needs to do. It's almost like a user's manual Mm -hmm. uh, to algorithms. And the idea is that users need to have this much information so they can not be passive users but be more deliberate uh, users of these algorithms. The second piece is that I think companies also have a bit of responsibility in terms of uh, educating users and uh... keeping them in the loop i mentioned how you know facebook now allows you with two clicks to inform the system that uh... there's a problem uh... with some post with advertising today in some cases we have seen that there are these options where you can click and say don't show me ads like this Mm -hmm. and that's a way to involve the user in the loop and once users become more actively involved they naturally also become more aware of the system and lastly i think at some level the education system needs to be changed because algorithms and technology are so fundamental to our lives that it should be part of basic literacy in schools. I think school curriculum needs to change so that students coming out of these systems have a high-level understanding of how algorithms work, how decisions are made for them by these systems, how decisions are made about them by these technology uh, technology systems.
1: Right, and I completely agree with that notion. I think we should be... In our schools, kids should know how to code. They should know uh, about algorithms and artificial intelligence. Since that is, we interact with technology on a daily basis. Uh, we should not only be able to interact or use these products, but also be able to know how to how they work. Um,
0: right, right. I think it's not necessary that everyone needs to be a programmer, but I think everyone will be a user of technology. So at least... Uh, a certain level of understanding of technology is needed for every person uh, to be effective. And so I think that basic literacy on technology and algorithms is uh, is needed.
1: Right. Now, um, moving on a little bit on uh, artificial intelligence, that chapter uh, uh, in, in your book uh, really uh, made me think a lot about what's coming. And uh, one of the things was the replacement of a significant amount of jobs that this might take place very soon. Could you tell us a little bit more about why types of jobs might be replaced by artificial intelligence and maybe how how soon can we expect those changes to take place?
0: Well, I think artificial, is advan- artificial intelligence is advancing very rapidly. And as more and more data becomes available, more computing or processing power becomes available, these systems are getting better and better. So I think we will expect a lot of automation to happen. And one of the big questions uh, because of that, as you mentioned, is what happens to job creation? Uh, There is one viewpoint that in the past, with all technologies that came in that did, did do a lot of automation, eventually, in the long run, they created more jobs than they took away. Um, and the question is, will AI be like that? I think there is evidence to suggest that AI is different from past technologies in the sense that, you know, it's automating some very fundamental things that humans can uh, do, like make decisions, uh, process a lot of data, and so on. And I think uh, our ability to generate jobs at a fast rate mm-hmm. uh, when a lot of jobs will also disappear is is actually not clear. And so we need to think about, you know, how do we retrain people? How do we provide people with some protection and security when AI comes in? And I think all these issues will become uh, important as one uh, moves on. Uh, in terms of jobs that AI will take away, I think, first of all, jobs that involve a lot of data analysis and making decisions from those Uh, AI will come in and take those over quite easily, and it will automate lots of routine tasks. um, And it's not just automation of, uh, you know, uh, one class of jobs. It's going to automate lots of blue-collar jobs, lots of white-collar jobs. And I think there are settings in which... Uh, you know, it will create jobs as well. The jobs it will create will be, of course, in things like computer programming and data science, which involves the analysis of data, uh, and so on. Uh, The other jobs that will be harder, but not impossible for it to be uh, touching, are the creative jobs. So I think the skills that will benefit people are either the creative skills, the the people skills, Mm -hmm. and on the other end, The highly technical, you know, data skills, programming skills, and so on. And lots of routine tasks will easily get automated with AI. And so one should keep that in mind as well.
1: I see. Now, um, what is your uh, prediction on AI replacing uh, any aspect of education? Will will, Will there be a point where teachers get replaced by AI in your perspective?
0: Well, see, that's where what I was going to say was that I think, you know, we need to recognize that the human in the loop is very important, Mm -hmm. especially when you're talking about settings like education, where you're trying to teach kids. Uh, I think those are settings where... Uh, AI should actually come in the last. I think there are lots of routine tasks which can be automated. Maybe even, you know, lots of people are employed as drivers in the U.S., you know, taxi drivers, truck drivers, you know, those kinds of jobs will be affected a lot by AI. But when you come to jobs such as, let's say, teaching, you know, you're talking about dealing with kids, you need lots of EQ. Uh, in those jobs. And I think those are the ones that will be affected the last because it's not just here's information, and the teacher's job is not just here's the information and I'll pass it on to you, but it requires a lot of understanding, reading, emotion. It understands, it requires uh, personalizing the communication to the individual. So I think those human skills are going to be addressed, uh, the human EQ skills are going to be addressed somewhat. Later by AI, uh, and I think it's more of the IQ types of skills that will be uh, affected first. But even within the IQ type of skills, you know, the question is how might something like scientific discovery be affected? And right. uh, today, what we're talking about is automating tasks which humans know to do well, and there's data from which the AI systems can learn. But if you look at inventing, stuff, which requires a certain amount of creativity, and it's not just, here's the data, figure out the pattern, and go ahead. It's harder, but it's not impossible. And that's one interesting point I want to make, which is that computer scientists are focused on trying to create a new form of AI, which uh, you know is commonly referred to as strong AI or artificial general intelligence. So the idea is most AI today is good at one task. It's not truly generally intelligent because you have a chess-playing AI program that can beat the world's best chess player, but that's all it can do. It cannot speak. It cannot understand language. It cannot drive a car. Or you have an AI system that can drive cars, but it cannot play chess. It cannot understand language. Or you have Alexa. It can understand language, but it cannot play chess or drive a car and so Mm -hmm. on. The goal is to build a strong AI or artificial general intelligence. And the idea behind these kinds of applications is that, you know, they will be generally intelligent. And then if they're generally intelligent, eventually they can beat humans at almost all tasks. And that's a future we're talking about not 10, 20 years from now, but certainly not that far off. You know, some surveys say that we are probably 50 to 60 years away from artificial general intelligence. Mm-hmm. So it's not that far off. So, the impact on jobs will be immense the jobs that will be protected the most
1: will be the ones that require a lot of eq or which involves creating ai itself mm-hmm. that is uh, tr- again truly fascinating it's such a short uh, time span uh, you know like you said a lot of things might get replaced and then just lastly before we leave because we're running out of time um i read on your book that the the bot. Uh, experiment or the bot uh, activity that was uh, that you described there, that bots are not only able to negotiate, but they're also they were able to come up with their own language on their own. Could you just briefly tell us about that? Because I found that extremely fascinating.
0: Yes. So this was a research study conducted in Facebook,
1: and the research
0: study was trying to see if bots can do something as complicated as negotiation because that involves not just looking at data and making predictions, but also trying to figure out what's going on on the other side. You know, what is that other person thinking? How do you find common ground? How do you close a deal and create a win-win? Right. And That's not easy. And so the study was trying to see if you can get AI systems to negotiate. Because if you can, then in the future, you know, we might be in a situation where, uh, let's say, Uh, David, you and I are trying to negotiate and we'd say, you know, uh, have your agent talk to my AI agent and let them negotiate and sort this out. So the value in the future could be immense. And they wanted to see how these systems did. And in practice, they did really well, much better than humans. They closed more deals than humans. They created more value than humans. They were less emotional. And sometimes we walk out of negotiations because we get angry or emotional. They were less likely to do that. So overall, they created a lot of value. Uh, But one of the things that in some of the experiments the researchers observed was that the AI systems were communicating with each other in ways that the researchers couldn't understand. Mm -hmm. And the researchers looked at the communications, and uh, the AI systems seemed to be understanding it and making sense of it and even arriving at a deal but the humans couldn't interpret it. And what they realized was that this was much like, let's say, uh, in financial markets, uh, stock traders, as they're constantly trading, they learn to create shorthand and their own unique language that a layperson cannot understand. So, for example, when they're buying and selling stocks, they might use short forms that we don't understand. These AI systems after negotiating for a long period of time, they also developed their own shorthand, their own new, new, unique language, which the outsiders couldn't understand. And one of the implications is again, now in that study, by the way, the researchers, when they noticed this, they just put in a control or a uh, a boundary and said and put a constraint that the AI system has to converse in English, and it continued uh, from that point on without a problem. Right. But it can. Also show how if you don't have the right checks and balances uh, an AI system can also go out of control and um, you know in that case it was in a lab setting no harm done but as we roll out AI into significant settings, uh, one has to worry about
1: these kinds of situations right well dr Zanagar, your 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 book has been fascinating to say the least uh, is there anything you'd like to add before we sign off?
0: No, I think this is great. I, I enjoyed the conversation very much thanks for bringing up a great set of questions i think overall my message is that algorithms can create a lot of value they have a lot of potential i'm not an algorithm skeptic i think in the long run we'll get a lot of value from them but there could be a lot of growing pains along the way and so i think we need to uh take note of this issue make sure as consumers we're doing the right things make sure our elected representatives are pro, uh, protecting us, and firms need to take responsibility and do the right things as well. And then I think we'll reap the value without uh, dealing with some of these uh, adverse consequences.
1: Well, uh, your book has given me a lot to think about and what to expect in the, in the near future. I want to thank you so much for taking the time and talking with me today, and I wish you the best with your book. Truly fascinating read. Thanks for having me, David. Bye. I just talked to Dr. Katharik Ozanagar on his new book, A Human's Guide to Machine Intelligence, How Algorithms Are Shaping Our Lives and How We Can Stay in Control. A truly fascinating read. I want to remind our listeners that if you missed our broadcast today, you can always listen to this and our other interviews on our YouTube page at Good Books Radio Strong and Cook. This is your host, David Inojosa, and I want to thank you for listening.